This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at learn.thoughtbot.com. Ready to drop some knowledge bombs on these people? Let's bomb (laughs) this village until it is dust with knowledge. (laughs) Wow, that's aggressive. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Wednesday, August 21st. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Chad Pytel. Hey, Chad. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's going well. Ready to drop some knowledge bombs on these people? Let's bomb this village until it is dust with knowledge. Wow, that's aggressive. Knowledge is aggressive sometimes. So we were going to talk today about our mentoring. Yeah. Um, We realized this morning we didn't have a guest, and so... (laughs) You can't. You're not supposed to say that. We totally planned this episode. Yes. It's been in the works for a month. It's definitely not thrown together. In five minutes notice. And we realized, hey, we have these mentees, these mentoring sessions we've been doing for uh, learn people. And so we figured we'd go through some. I've been actually keeping a file of notes for the frequently asked questions that are coming up and my answers to them. And I was going to throw some of them out there because I'm curious uh, where my recommendations differ from yours. Yeah, this is where we find out we've both been recommending completely different things to people. (laughs) Absolutely. Stopping all progress in the Rails world. This is something I actually just recently wrote a blog post about, but one of the most common questions I get is just sort of like a general, how do I get better at programming? Like, how do I improve? And my number one, my number one answer to that, there's a, there's a handful of parts to it, is pair with people that are better than you. Mm-hmm. Would you uh, you'd echo that? Yeah, that is definitely the number one answer. It's not super applicable to some of the people who I'm mentoring. There's just no one, um, you know, around there's just no one around that they have access to and that's why they're subscribing. Yeah. And so what I instead do is like try to fulfill that role for them as much as possible, provide some guidance and figure out uh, where they're at. And so then for them, the number one recommendation is start building an app that you are passionate about that I will help you define the scope on to make sure that it's something reasonable you can work on. And then we will, and I'll give you feedback on it, and I'll review code as you go along. But actually building something, there's there's a lot of people who have like done tutorials and everything for a long time, but not actually built anything of their own. Yeah, Uh, my that that answer comes up for me and some other things, which are like, how do I get my first job? Which is you find a lot of people that like like you said have done sort of have fooled around a little, but don't have like a, a portfolio app to point to where they've had to like actually struggle themselves. Right. Um, and you, so you mentioned there's some people that can't pair. Um, I think remote pairing is kind of coming into its renaissance. Yeah. Um, Avdi Grimm has been pushing his, uh, or not, his promoting this pair with me. Yeah. And I think it's pair with dot me. Yeah. Or we'll link that up. There's like seven of them, I think. Uh, Yeah. I I think this is, it's kind of, the technology has kind of finally gotten to the point where it's like, okay, this is not so painful anymore. There's also a bunch of services that Mm. have started to provide some stuff and we can link some of those up too yeah have we tried any of those yeah we're trying uh, like people are trying each one as it comes out okay um so maybe when we have a, a opinion on that we can we'll yeah. offer that too yeah um but it's, it's getting easier is the point mm-hmm. which is awesome because I, I really do think there's so much value in seeing somebody's process in particular yeah um and so it, it's great for people that are stuck a little bit geographically to be able to to find some people that are better than they are um and it's i also 
I tell people that it's okay to pair with people that are not better than you as well. Right. Because you gain, you gain from explaining this. Yeah. Uh, teaching is a great way of learning. And so, yeah, it doesn't really, it actually doesn't matter what experience level you want to pair with people. I think at all experience levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, and I've heard a, I've heard a little aphorism from the medical world where when you're trying mm-hmm. to learn how to do a procedure, you're supposed to uh, watch <laughs> one, do one, teach one. Okay. And that's what? Uh, and not, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> okay. I'm glad that's fine. <laughs> so another question um, that you were helping someone with the other day was balancing business needs with code quality. It comes up every once in a while, you, you know, usually with the more experienced people, people who are already on a team and either their team as a whole is not doing what they would consider best practices um, or they would uh or that there's individuals on the team or business stakeholders who either don't believe in test-driven development or in this particular case that i was just talking to someone about yesterday their team is practicing tdd um they he feels really good about the code that they're generating now but they have a whole section of their application which is legacy so it's untested it's the source of a lot of concern and bugs and they can never get the time um, to that's needed in order to improve that. So mm-hmm. we talked about strategies for trying to improve it without treating it like this special project. And that was one recommendation I had for for him is it shouldn't be talk it shouldn't necessarily be talked about as like this special project that we need to take a bunch of time for. Mm-hmm. Instead, just you know, just do it as part of the work and build it into the estimates for how long something is going to take when we touch that part. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can reframe the conversation in that, that should be uh, better. Yeah, I, I like that approach. Um, a book I recommend to a lot of people who are dealing with legacy code, which is any code without tests, is Michael Feather's book, yeah. which is working effectively with legacy code. Um, and he talks about a lot of strategies for this. And, and I like his general approach, which is what you said, is not like, don't think you're just going to sit down and like fix the problem over the course of four weeks. You try to develop sort of like quarantined areas or sort of beachheads. It's like, okay, I need to go into this module and change something. So let me at least get some, a little bit of tough test coverage here and then make my changes. And now we have a tiny Island of, you know, better code that's tested in this, you know, mass of badness. Right. Um, but at least it's a start. And then you try to sort of keep going, keep adding to that over time. What about a scenario where the whole tech team, you know, believes something should be done? Um, whether that be test driven development or cleaning up specific areas of the app, but the business people say there's no time for that. Yeah. And maybe it's different depending on what it is. Like, so say you're working on an app that's completely untested and you really, the whole tech team wants to write tests. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that to me seems like a little bit of dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Um, So if, you hire technical people to make the technical decisions for the company. So if, if technical guidance is coming down from people that are not technical, right. something is the division of responsibility is probably off. Right. Um, occasionally, now that's, that's part one of the answer. Part two is, but sometimes the business needs outweigh the technical needs. Right. Like at the end of the day, the company has to survive. It has to make money. There are certain things you might not be privy to. And sometimes I think 
you just have to accept that you're going to be get told what to do and it won't be what you want to do, but the business needs that for some reason. Right. One of the things I don't like about the premise as a whole is that um, I totally agree that, 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 that the business needs sometimes overway, but, but one of the things I don't like about the premise as a whole is that the premise in that conversation is that test-driven development is slower. Oh, yeah. And the only time it's actually slower, in my opinion, is if you have a bunch of people who don't, who aren't fully practicing it. So they, they need time to learn. Mm-hmm. But in a team that's fully practicing TDD, it shouldn't be slower. I agree. Um, I think over time you'll spend much more time fighting nasty bugs and weird regressions right. in an untested code base. Right. And I believe that to my... To the core of my soul, <laughs> having done both right. for a long time. And I think even writing the code the first time around, not even just saving time on bugs and regressions later on, but if you're fully up to speed with TDD, you should be able to write code just as fast uh, you know, as someone who's doing it untested. Um, you know, and not everyone, I think, either agrees with that or fully understands that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, I, I understand why it doesn't seem that way. Because you're like, right. well, you have to also now take the time to write the tests. And sometimes the tests take longer to write than the production code itself, um, which is fairly common. And so it feels like you're, quote unquote, wasting time. Um, right. But this time pays back almost instantly. Like, so you said you think it's, fa- it's just as fast to write the code when you're TDDing it. Well, I and think it, if you can agree that by doing TDD, you also, it's not just about bugs and regressions. It's about creating better code. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you end up writing less code, I believe, when you do test-driven development. So you're because you're only writing code for the cases that actually matter for your application. Yep. So you're not writing extra code that handles edge cases that aren't real or that are the what-if scenarios. Yeah. Um, tests give you a really positive design pressure on your code. Right. So when I review people's code and they have giant methods and giant classes, they are never tested. Right, And I'm like, I know you don't have tests for this class because I can tell by how big the methods are that you would never put yourself through the pain of writing tests. And so if you had instead started by writing the tests, you, wouldn't, you would not have created this bad code in the first place. Right. Um, and so I, I, I believe that, that, like you said, it's the, the code. It's not just about bugs and regressions. It's about the code that comes out is better immediately right. because of that pressure from the tests. So it, sorry, it also lets you refactor that code, right? So like it lets it stay good right. because you can be aggressive about changing it when you need to because you feel confident due to the tests being there. Right. It kind of blows my mind that we have to keep selling this. Yeah, it's not. It's not a scenario I think where, where people. I w- actually, I'm, I was about to say something which I actually know to be false, which is I was going to say. There's no one who's like TDD is a complete crock and it should is wrong. I don't need to do it because I'm a good developer. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, those people still do exist. Sure. Um, I think we've just done a good job of isolating ourselves <laughs> away from them. Yeah. So why do we have to keep on having this argument? So I think to some extent we don't. So mm-hmm. what I hear from most people is, I know I should be testing. I just I just haven't really learned how, or it's kind of hard, and I start the off doing it. let me. 
Yeah, like that occasionally, but it's usually sort of self-imposed. It's like mm-hmm. I just it's really hard to learn Rails and I'm just getting my head around it and like I actually agree I think you shouldn't learn testing in the very beginning. That's right. personal opinion. I think there's too much to juggle in the very beginning and so you should put it off. Um but then people often have trouble being like okay, now it's time to take the plunge. Yeah. And I think they understand um rash- logically what the benefits will be if they learned it, but they don't have that uh, emotion. They haven't had that thing where like the tests caught this nasty little thing that would have caused them so much pain down the road mm-hmm. that gets them really sold on tests. Um, so it's, I think to some degree, I think the, the 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 argument for tests has kind of been won in favor of them, but there are pockets of I haven't learned it yet and I'm kind of afraid to because it seems kind of hard, and then a little bit of people saying, well, I'm I just don't buy that the the trade off is is there. And if you're not confident, it's going to be hard to communicate the decisions you're making in a confident way, mm-hmm. which then cause the people around you to trust you. Yep. And the trust is going to be necessary in order for them to, you know, let you make the decisions that need to be made technically. Yeah. And I feel, I feel like that's part of your job as a professional. Mm-hmm. Is when you accept that, like, I'm not a professional programmer, I'm being paid for my expertise, I think you take on responsibility to fight for good technical decisions. Right. And I think that's really hard for some people um, because of, like, well, I'm, I'm not the manager, I'm not the guy in charge, therefore, like, I don't really have any power here. And it's like, no, you do. And you should fight these things and you should be vocal about that. Right. And if you're going if you, you know, to lose, at least lose loudly. And at least, you know, state your, state your concerns and, and put them out there because you're being paid to do so right and realize that you if you having the same conversation or argument over and over and over again is going to be tedious and at some point you'll reach a a breaking point where you know you need to decide whether it truly is important to you and if you're not allowed to work the way that you are going to work in that environment then you need to change environments Mm -hmm. um you know but I, I think it does come down to trust as well. So if you are a good developer or even designer who's continually delivering features on the schedules that are requested, building really great code and hitting milestones and all those things, you should be building trust and confidence that allows you to say, gives you some leeway to say, no, trust me on this. Like we're going to do it this way or I'm going to do this this way. And within the confines of what I've been able to deliver you previously, I should have a certain amount of trust to write the code in a certain way or do a certain practice. Or, no, I really don't think we should make this design decision. Um, This shouldn't be blue. It should be purple or, you know, or, or this should be here, not here. And if you haven't built up that trust, then... You know, there's a couple possible reasons for that. One is you're actually not delivering at that high level that has earned you that trust. And I don't fault the people around you. If you haven't earned the trust and, you know, then you then like business with business people, there's so many other concerns in terms of making the business run effectively and hitting certain milestones and goals and revenue and whether they're going to be able to pay you or not those kinds of things factor into their decision making I, I I'm, I'm totally i agree on with that i think you have to earn that and it's when i hear people that are in sort of crappy work environments um it's like okay well you should be able to get another job better job the market is pretty good right but if you can't maybe you're not great 
maybe you'd kind of deserve this bad work environment because you're not working really hard and trying to kill it all the time. So make sure you make sure you've built up some capital. Like I think of it as like social capital right. or trust capital that you can then later spend on certain things. Right. And be judicious judicious with. So there's there's varying degrees of this whole thing. So in teams that are highly efficient, doing test driven development, all the code is relatively well, then you're gonna reach another plateau of like continual improvement, you know? And you still have to balance business needs with that from time to time. Mm-hmm. So we hit that on some of the stuff that we work on together, I think, where we instituted Sandy Metz's rules. And, you know, it's a, uh, a long, this is specifically on the Learn app, mm-hmm. which has been, it's actually our longest running app that we actively work on now because it started as an app that just had our workshops hosting. Um, and so it's been, you know, like four years that the app has existed. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of legacy stuff there, uh, not in the sense that it's untested, but that, you know, it's just old. And so when we instituted the ru- the Sandy Metz's rules, and there's a blog post that we can link about what the, fi- the five rules are. I can but, summarize them real fast. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so there's four rules. Classes have to be under 100 lines of code, methods under five lines, no more than four parameters to a method, and controllers can instantiate only one object. So we instituted those rules, and... The situation we very quickly ran into is that it was easy to write new code that followed those rules, but that when we make a change that touches the old code, which doesn't follow those rules, we'd have those pull requests go on, like just grow in scope. Um, and what turned in what it would turn what was going to be a task that should take a couple hours into a couple days because in between the code reviews and talking about how to solve the problem. And um, I think one pull request that I was doing, the biggest rule that had caused the biggest change was the fact that controllers can only ins- assign one instance variable. And so we had controllers that were assigning five or six instance variables that was u- that were used by the view. Mm-hmm. Changing that when it was unrelated to the change I was actually going to make um, caused that particular feature to to balloon Mm -hmm. in in terms of time and so you know what do we think about that i mean we're both developers right but we're also responsible for the business yeah so my my thoughts on that were um the reason that that code that, that that pull request expanded was because of previously created technical debt so if it was if it's hard to follow those rules on old code, it's because old code could use a little bit of touching up, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, I think we decided that we had the time and ability to pay down some of that technical debt at right. this period. Right. Um, before we launched Prime, I think we we, we decided we didn't mm-hmm. because the the thing we did to get Prime out there was just sort of a series of hacks. Right. Um, it was basically what's the simplest thing that we can make this work, and it's okay if it's ugly. And we shipped some fairly ugly code out there. And then once we had launched and once we were like, yes, this is a thing, we're definitely going to do it. We want it to last. Um, we said, okay, now we're going to switch into a slightly different mode, which is we realize we're going to be working on this app for a long time. We realize it has some old bad decisions in here. So let's start investing the time regularly to make future changes easier. Right. And this, so there's a return on that investment. Like we're, we're paying some of that debt down, but later it's like, okay, now we want to change this to work that way and it's much much more straightforward right and then i think putting in place some reasonable 
boundaries, you know, because it can keep expand. Like, so to realize that, okay, this thing has, which was a fairly small change has now been going on three days mm-hmm. and everything I, I'm, I am implementing these improvements, but then that touches another thing, which then touches another thing and realizing that at some point, and we had this conversation cause it was sort of starting to happen mm-hmm. on that particular feature. And we said, okay, let's review the particular changes and, and then say, okay, in this particular area, are we leaving it better than we, than we found it? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Then let's stop. Like let, let, we can't go on forever with this particular method. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I think that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So we've over the past, so this happened maybe a month ago, month and a half ago, I would say that in the last three or so weeks that hasn't really come up. Mm-hmm. So we went through this period of sort of intense, oh, these things are ballooning up. We're paying down a lot of this stuff. Things are taking longer. And then like two weeks later, it was sort of fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and now when I go to in a lot of the areas that we're actively touching, all the methods are already below five lines. Mm-hmm. They're already only assigning one instance variable in the controller. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not, the scope on the things I'm doing isn't, increasing and then my job becomes to make sure that i keep the quality high right as i'm ch- making changes yeah so so paying that debt down pretty much worked yeah and like i did some work the other day on um we were building a metrics dashboard to show how many subscribers we have and all sorts of plans and because you had done some work on pulling out a, a plan model that was distinct from the active subscription and yada yada it was much easier than it would have been otherwise yeah. and, and actually that work is another good example where we had, I had previously written some that metrics code and I wrote it untested because it's really quite hairy database queries. We didn't really know it was written pretty early on and we didn't know what was going to change, what wasn't. It's also really low. It's not user facing. It's really low risk code. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we now have a better idea how things work and it was perfectly reasonable to say, okay, we need to revise these metrics. Ben is going to do that. He's going to throw out the existing code and we're going to test drive a new metrics dashboard. Mm -hmm. And understanding that we had made the decision that we were going to have something quick and dirty before and now we were going to do something that was actually going to regress us. Like our metrics dashboard has almost nothing on it right now and it's Mm -hmm. been a couple days. And that's okay because we understand that we are, you know, we're not taking a step backward. We're just, <laughs> things are taking the amount of time that they should take mm-hmm. now that we actually know what we're doing and can invest in the time further. Yeah. I, I think it's, so we, those, those Sandy Metz things are called rules and TDD is another rule. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, sometimes you decide to override them. So like, uh, technically rules are meant to be broken. That's right. I mean, technically like your pull request, you know, if we're following all the rules, like, okay, well you touch this class, therefore you need to refactor it, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But it's like, you know what, this is, we've, we've gotten. No, that's when of, I set an alarm for 2 a.m. in the morning. I set an alarm, get up and commit the untested code in the middle of the is night. Is that what so you, you did? Can't see it. Yeah. So, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just so kidding. I think, so I think we made the right call with the Sandy Metz things. Like, yeah. And, and that's one of that's even sort of built into the rules, which is you can break the rules if you convince your reviewer that mm-hmm. you should. Um, and you did. Um, 
the the metrics thing i'm a little less sold on honestly mm-hmm. um i i believe in writing spikes for things sometimes like if you're really um if you're unsure of how something's going to look or work or if you're working with a new api or something um i like throwing out a spike a spike just being untested code um but with the int- there's the intent of throwing it away the funny thing is it's really hard to throw code away yeah um and there's i've actually myself have committed a number of like don't worry this is just for now. We're going to come back and do it mm-hmm. or like come back and make this nice or pretty or add test or whatever. And it's so, so easy to never do that. Yeah. Um, so like when I remember I went in there to make a change to one of those methods that was generating um, the metrics code and I found a bug. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I wonder if we'd written tests if we this probably wouldn't have a bug in here and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think. Right. And, and this is where I come in as like, what is the risk to there being that bug there? Yeah. It's so it, it's really so minimal that I have a, in that particular area I have a lot of tolerance because um, and and maybe you're seeing this as as you dig in it the numbers were never going to be accurate anyway <laughs> like no the numbers aren't just and you're going to test drive this and the numbers still aren't going to be 100 percent accurate and and so that in that that leads me down a road where. I'm, I have a higher tolerance for risk. Yeah, because it's only us, because we, we're the only people that see it, and because it's not vitally important that they be 100% correct, um, I, have, I have more tolerance as well. Um, but still, I don't know. Um, it did get it done. Well, see, see, there's, there's this feeling. It's like, it got it done faster. But like, did it? What, do we think the end result was really faster when we consider that now I'm redoing it? Whereas if there had been tests, maybe I would just refactor what no, was I there. No, I think that that's the point is the end result is not actually faster. Yeah. But it got, it got us a dashboard, you know, that held us over. I think the, it, the, it works because we understand the trade-offs and are quite willing to throw away code or make changes or institute new rules mm-hmm. because that's we have a you know we, we have an understanding of that yeah. so uh, I, I think we get a little you know it's a little bit easier for us yeah and i think i think that's a that's a good point actually is that as you get more experienced you can add more nuance to the way you do things so like for instance with comments like i tell beginners to just never write comments it's right. like if you if you feel the need to add a comment, you should refactor the code and improve the names until the comment is unnecessary. Mm-hmm. As you get more experienced, there are certain scenarios that you learn to identify where a comment can be a really good idea. Mm-hmm. Like I'm about to do this really weird hack to fix the, to hack around a bug in right. Rack, and so I'm going to leave a comment here because this is going to be super confusing to someone this season. Right, and in that case, we often leave the URL to the ticket where the bug is described yep. and and all that stuff. Yeah, so so. So as your experience grows, I think you get the ability to decide when these quote-unquote rules should be broken. Mm-hmm. And you can do them pragmatically, which I think is the best place to be. Um, for beginners, I think that's too much. That's too confusing. So I will simplify it down and say, always do TDD. Never write comments. But as you get better, it's like, okay, there are occasional times where you've decided to weigh the risk-reward here and make a good choice. Right. So I want to touch on something a little softer. We've been talking about tests for a little while. Yeah. That's a lot of tests. So I have something I hear from people um, a fair amount is uh, they're afraid of other people seeing how bad their code is. Yeah. Like I'll say, oh, you should bring some code for code review or like, oh, you should should contribute to open source or like publish those gems you've been working on or whatever. And people are like, "Uh, but I'm really, no, my code's so bad. 
or like, oh, I want to release this, but I got to I gotta really make some changes before I get it out there. Yeah. Have you run into this? Yes. Yes, I have. I don't... What have you been telling people? Get over it. Yeah. Um, I'm, I was trying to, like, do I have some anecdote? I mean, everyone wrote bad code. Everyone writes bad code. Everyone yeah. wrote bad code. Mm-hmm. And the idea that your code is so much worse than the other code that people are writing that you wouldn't even be able to show it yeah. is just ridiculous. Right. And I think you got to... This is so hard to do, but you need to divorce yourself from right. your own identity being the quality of your code. Right. Um, it's like, yes, you wrote some code that could be improved. You are not a bad person. You are not a dumb person. Right. Like everyone, everyone, like you said, everyone has done this at some point. As you cannot learn to program without first writing terrible code. Right. And so you get to, you kind of have to sort of divorce yourself. That's 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 valuable because even even I when I like write some stuff and do the pull requests and and then start to see the comments come in, your first reaction is like, no, uh, no, I, I write good code. Yep. But you have to just divorce yourself from it and realize, oh, yeah, I didn't I didn't consider that. Or this person doesn't know the decision that I went through to get to the code that I got. All they see is the the final product. And that final product is not me. It's the code. Uh, it's just lines. Agreed. And I, I, I feel the same way. It's like even, even today, it's like I feel pretty confident in my abilities, but still it's the same thing when comments come in on your pull request. You're like, oh, I totally should have thought of that. That name does suck. And like, you're just like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Uh, it's, it's hard to do. Um, but I'm at least over the point where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to put stuff out there and, and because it makes me better. Uh, but one sort of tangential thing I want to bring up is um, there's a right and wrong way, I think, to give comments on code. Yeah. Um, and I've seen it done poorly. So we, we, I think, do a pretty good job around here of comments on code or something like, this name seems a little confusing. Maybe we could change it? Like, qu- things are sort of posed as questions. Mm-hmm. Like, is there a better name for this? You know, what if we extracted a method here? What do you think of X, Y, Z? Um, and it's, I think, delivering things in, a, in a, a way that's sort of friendly and questioning like that is just so much more effective than, like, I don't understand this. This is confusing. Things like that. Sort right. Of statements. And you shouldn't just pick out the negative things as well. It's helpful to find positive things to say about the code yep. in the review as well. Yeah, I set that for as a goal for myself. It's like always try to find even like one little thing, like a hey, great name right. or like nice extraction or right. whatever. And and even if I don't have time to find that one thing or didn't have something specific, then I'll try to make a point of in my general comment being like, "Thank you for making this change." Mm. Here's, you know, I just had a few comments or whatever mm-hmm. um, to just show the appreciation for what was done. Totally. Yeah. I, I think that's, there's, there's a lot of value in considering the way a message is presented. Yeah. It makes a big difference. So we wrote up, we actually have a guide for code reviews. Is that public? Yes. Okay, it's cool. at thoughtbot.com slash guides. Um, and there's one in there for reviewing people's code. And mm-hmm. it has a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you're afraid of other people seeing how bad your code is... Get it, then then you should be extra willing to put it out there. Yeah. Like, I think one of the best things that I have decided for myself is deciding to immediately admit when I don't understand something mm-hmm. um, and be fairly aggressive in, like, trying to figure out what it is I don't understand. Because there's this there's a very strong temptation when someone's like, oh, because we were doing this something-something. I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. But I don't really <laughs> understand it because like, you want to seem smart. Mm-hmm. And especially in our field because we're, like, an, intellect, an intellectually driven field right. like co- programming is kind of just like your brain appearing on the right. screen so you there's a there's a value in seeming like the smart person in the room 
Right. And, and, or you don't want to derail the conversation mm-hmm. that's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're actually, I, I think that the opposite is true that by making sure that you understand everything that's going on, that very often causes the other people in the conversation to talk through what you don't understand. And maybe they'll have some insight that they didn't even, that it's almost always valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I try especially to do it in group situations because as if I don't understand it, there's a, there's definitely a possibility that someone else is sharing my confusion. Yeah. And so it benefits others as and well. I, you know, if you, if you listen to good developers and designers too, talk and work through problems, I think that that's a common trait you'll see in, in, in people who are expert level mm. is very quickly saying, I don't understand that. Or I, you know, agreed. Um, I'm just no, I don't know that actually. I've never heard of that before. I think the, the more you have, the stronger your thought of, wow, I should really know this is the more it is that you should admit that mm-hmm. like the faster you should be like, actually, I don't really understand database locking. Can you just tell me like in 30 seconds how that actually works? Um, and I think that really, that has been a huge improvement in my, has led to a huge improvement in my skills. Cause every mm-hmm. time I bump into something I should know, I, I just admit it. And then, then I get a little lesson and right. it's gone. So I have a lot of people uh, ask me about uh, dev-related boot camps, these sort of four-week to 24-week yep. type um, boot camps. Yeah, we actually get a lot of people who are applying to them, signing up for Prime, trying to figure out where they fit in the whole ecosystem, mm-hmm. um, applying to our own thing, Apprentice.io. Um, and when they apply, they sign up for Prime because we point people at that just because the volume is so high yeah. of applications we get. Um, anyone who is Apprentice.io focuses on intermediate, bring them to advanced level. So anyone who's a beginner who finds a site gets directed at, at Learn as a place to start and the trail maps. So we get this question a lot. So people ask me what we think. Um, I'm only... I'm closely familiar with basically one, which is G School, mm-hmm. um, run by Jeff Casimir and some other people out in Colorado. And I had nothing but really favorable impressions of that. I went out there and met the students, and I know Jeff pretty well. Um, and I think, I think if I think you can do these things extremely well. I believe there's a six month program, which I think is a, actually a good number. It's a big, in, or it's three or six. I'm not it's sure. It's six months. Okay. I think it's tough to learn much about programming in like say three months. Um, six months feels like a better length to me. I think so. So my my general take on these, I think they can really accelerate your learning. Um, I, I think if you have the ability to kind of go all in like that, I think it can be a really good way to get better faster. Um, but it is also sort of an all in play. Yep. It's tough for a lot of people so to do that. So it's full time uh, of your time. Actually, it's more than full time. You're going to be working like eighty hours a week or more. Yeah. On it, the students in G school were definitely cranking a lot. And it's also you pay for it. So G School is twenty thousand dollars. Dev Bootcamp, I think, is twelve thousand five hundred. That's a uh, eight or ten week program. Mm-hmm. So they're all in that range of you know tens of thousands of dollars, mm-hmm. and you're not working during that time. So it's it's a big it's a big push. Yeah. Um, but that said, I, I think so. One of the when people ask me how to get how do I get my first job in the Rails world? Mm-hmm. One of the things I tell them is that you really desperately need five friends that are also Rails developers because almost all jobs go to somebody's friend. Like that's, that's such a high referral culture. Um, 
And I think accelerators are a great way, or these boot camps are a great way to get your five friends. Right. Because they're your fellow students, so you're building a network there, but also they're going to presumably bring outside people in that you can kind of get to know, and I think that's a huge help for that. Yeah. A lot of people who contact us, they've applied and been accepted to more than one school. Mm. So they say, I've applied to these five, I got into these three. You know, which one do you prefer? Which one would be the best for me? And in that scenario, I actually often say that the, the particular one doesn't really matter. Mm. And that if you are dedicated and you're, you're going to learn and you're passionate about it, mm-hmm. then just paying that much money for something, working on it 80 hours a week for 8, 12, 6 months, you know, whatever it is, that full-time dedicated learning experience is probably going to be uh, much more important than what particular boot camp you go to. And I think people find that valuable because I've talked to some people who use that answer to reevaluate their overall direction and whether they're passionate enough about this. Another question I often ask people is like, why do you think you want to do this? Hmm. Because a lot of these people going into these schools have never programmed before at all. Yeah. And I, I, I have a general fear about that, mm-hmm. that, that, so someone has decided that they're going to do this, never having programmed before, and they're going to pay this huge amount of money and not work for a while in order to do this. Well, how do they know how they actually like it? And so asking the, that question, I think is important. Like why, why are you going to do this? Totally. And if the answer is, well, because I, I think it'd be a good opportunity to get a job, I worry that they don't fully understand what the job actually is and know whether that they're going to be happy doing it for another 10 years. Mm-hmm. So you think they should do some programming on their own, a substantial amount of programming on their own before trying one of these schools? I think so. Yeah, I agree with that. People think that there's some, like, that learning to develop, to be a developer is like some quick and easy thing. And it's, it's not, you know, the schools can shortcut this by, but they're doing it by, okay, you're going to spend, you know, I don't know what it works out to like, you know, a thousand hours or whatever over the course of that short period of time. So you're still putting in the time. You're just focused solely on doing it and you have a support structure around you. Right. There really isn't a shortcut. Um, It is a lot of work and it's hard. Mm -hmm. And so... I do worry that people who have no experience in it at all um, don't actually know what they're getting into yeah. and will have spent a lot of money and a lot of time and end up doing, you know, in a certain area where they then discover that they don't like it. And I have the same argument against college. I think a lot of people go to college now not knowing what they actually want to do. Mm-hmm. I think that that is a potential recipe for having a big debt where you don't actually know. <laughs> aren't don't uh, doing something that you actually love doing. So one thing I actually get a lot of people that are asking about a lot of the people that I'm mentoring are looking for their first rails job um, or they have one that they're really not happy with and they mm-hmm. want another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I mentioned earlier, one of my main things, which is get your five friends, like get plugged in basically. So you hear about these jobs that are happening and things like that. Um, I always recommend people get a sample app, like, like have a portfolio app that with cl- code that they're really proud of. Um, rather than code they feel like they have to apologize for. Right. So a lot of people are like, well, I have this app, but there are no tests, and like it's kind of old. And it's like, well, that's not a good sample app. Right. Especially it's not good if that doesn't reflect where you're currently at. Totally. 
yeah, it should be should be definitely up to date and, and yeah, and and not apology worthy. Um, but the other thing that I think is so those are sort of fairly straightforward. The other mm-hmm. thing that I think I'd, most people should embrace a little bit more is um, the rifle rather than shotgun approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's it's much easier to get a job at a company if you've decided you really want to work there. Mm-hmm. Like my dream is to work here and or like maybe one or two other places and not just like any rails job. So if, right. if your only criteria is like, I want a rails job, then like you can blast out a hundred resumes and like kind of nothing will happen most likely. Right. But if you're and like, ultimately that's not really what matters, right? You should be making a decision about where you want to work based on the kind of company and what you're actually working on. Right. And we have, fortunately we have enough opportunity to be able to make a decision based on that. You shouldn't be just, there are lots of rails companies and they're right. all hiring. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Including us. Yeah. <laughs> but so, yeah, so I think you should take the rifle approach and like really focus and, and have a t- an application tailored for the company that you're trying to get into. Yeah. And sort of, you know, reach out to your friends and say, do you know anyone at this company? And then like ask that person, can I buy you a cup of coffee and like, get, and become friendly with them. Like I, I ended up working at ThoughtBot because I had a relationship with Dan Croak over the course of like 18 months that started off as just like, hey, we should. We met at a, at a Boston Ruby group, and then we got a drink one time, and then we ended up doing the Rails Rumble together, and it sort of built over time. Um, and I think that's how a lot of really good uh, jobs get found and filled is right. through relationships that get built up sort of slowly. Yeah. Do you think that people don't do that because in the mode where they're looking for a job and don't have a job, they're like, I, you know, I need to get a job next week. <clears throat> like I need to interview with a hundred different people. It's it's tough. It's like dating. So you can't, you don't want to come off like you really need it. Right. <laughs> like that hurts your chances. Right. Like you, it's like, Oh, you know, I mean, yeah, we could go on Friday, but I got lots of other options <laughs> like that kind of it's, and it's hard to do when you're feeling like I really got to get a job, but you don't want that whiff of desperation Yeah. It, because it's, it subconsciously undermines you. It's, it's hard to, I think it's hard for people to stay dispassionate about that. Like if it seems like this guy just really wants any job because he really wants a job. I think it's hard to be like, oh, yeah, he really wants to work here, and we'll do an awesome, mm-hmm. awesome work here. Um, so that, that's a tough position to be in, but I think you kind of got to fake it a little bit. Yeah. Not to say, like, you need to be standoffish, but um, I think you, you don't want to make your personal problems um, professional issues. Right. I think you need to kind of firewall that. Right. Which is like, oh, you're a consultant, and, like, you really need your client X to pay because you've got to, like, make your mortgage or whatever. But, like, you can't let them feel that you are in that position. Right. So maybe there's a middle, uh, a reasonable middle ground, which is instead of just focusing on one company, you know, try to find two or three Mm. companies and tailor an application specific to them, start building relationships specifically with them. So don't take it one at a time, but do it in smaller, smaller increments. Totally agree. Yep. And then one other thing that I think is really important is to realize that Yes, there are a lot of places hiring, but certain places are going to be overwhelmed by applications. So a fair amount of people ask me, like, oh, how can I get into Apprentice.io? And, like, I happen to know that we get, like, dozens, hundreds of applications. We get hundreds of applications, and the acceptance rate for Apprentice.io is, is about 5%. Now. Yeah, which is, I think, that's, like, lower than Princeton. Like, yeah. Princeton is 6%. So, like, yeah. it's, it's, so in cases like that or things where, like, you want to give a conference talk and you're, you're one of 120 proposals that get put in for 10 slots. Um, I think it's really important to stand out. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is something I coach people on. It's like, okay, you've got to find a way that you are the guy or the girl that did this or like has like be the something guy or the something gal. Right. And like whatever that something is, is up to you. 
but find some way to sort of stand out a little bit other than just the normal application process. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, uh, if best is you know someone at the company and they can say, oh, make sure we keep an eye on this person's application because I think they're good. That's perfect. That's ideal. But after that, it can be things like you made a custom landing page to talk about why you want to work at this company. Right. Um, or, like, you know, you're the maintainer of whatever or you released a gem about the company's name. Like, just... Do, even if it's something stupid, like I've, I've when I really want to speak at certain conferences, I've like mailed them a handwritten note with some ThoughtBot stickers. I'm like, hey, I would really love to speak here. And it's just like kind of dumb and small and honestly fairly easy. But it just put me just 10% ahead of the other people who hadn't done that. I became the guy that sent the stickers. Um, and I think that makes a big difference. Yep. So, so, so be aware that you can often, your competition is you often have a lot of competition, but you can stand out with right. fairly small gestures. And that stand out the thing you do to stand out or that relationship that you build there may not get you hired, but it makes it harder to just completely dismiss you. Right. So when someone comes to us and has, has made them stand out or has built a personal relationship, they still might not be a good fit for apprentice IO or for ThoughtBot, but I'll take the time then to refer to think about where they might be a good fit for and try to make a referral Mm -hmm. or, or do something and instead of just never doing a response. Yep. I think that's, I think it can be, that's huge. That's huge. And, and by the way, a great way to stand out is to show passion. Mm-hmm. Like to show that you're, you're, you're passionate about working at that place in particular. You're passionate about programming. You're passionate about getting better. I think that's a great way to, to, to be, be the, 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 the gal that showed that she was insanely into this thing and therefore did this and made this and created that. And like, um, passion is kind of the key word for me in applications. Like to me, it's all, it's almost as good as competence, right. maybe even better. And I think that you, people misjudge where you, where the line is, where someone, where you turn off people. I think that that line is really far. You could probably go pretty far mm-hmm. where you're not turning people off. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe if you show up at their office, that's a real good job. Just show up and start working. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to kick that, me out. That might be a little too far. Yeah. That might be over that line. But certainly emailing, checking in a couple days later, just, you know, yep. start trying to keep the conversation going isn't too far. Yeah. And a fairly easy one is having a blog. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to get hired and you don't have a blog, you're doing it wrong, I think. Mm-hmm. Like you should be writing a post every single, especially if you have no job, you should be writing a post every day about something you're learning or working on or a bug you fixed or a thing you discovered or a hack or a workaround every day, I think. Yeah. Because it, we're gonna, you're going to get Googled. And, or, and I mean, I would encourage you to even put that link right on your thing and say, I've written a lot about Ruby and what I think about it over here. Mm-hmm. And that's such a huge advantage over like a small application to be able to go and click and read a bunch of somebody's writing because it tells you so much about them and shows so much passion. I think that's, that's like kind of a, that's a slam dunk if you're looking for a job. I know for ThoughtBot personally, me, me personally, if the only time we really look at a resume is when there's nothing else there. <laughs> yeah. So if you send if you fill out the contact form or an application or whatever, and you have the cover letter or you have a chance to write something, that's what I look at. We look at your ability to communicate there and the things you link to there. Mm -hmm. And the only time I really look at a resume in any detail would be if there's nothing else given to us. Mm -hmm. And so uh, don't worry so much about that. In fact, I'm going to, I'm more likely to visit your, the page you direct me to, which can then tell me your experience then I would be a resume that lists your experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so focus on that. Um, and the resume is, is really secondary. 
Yeah. Now. I mean, I, I remember applying here. I mailed you a link to my blog and my GitHub and uh, like a couple paragraphs about it. I don't it. think we ever looked at a resume. I think you made a blog post about how we <laughs> did never look at a resume. <laughs> I did, exactly. So I'm following my blogging advice. <laughs> I said programmer re resumes are deprecated. Yeah. Subject to removal. Um, all right. I think that's a good little grab bag of unasked for anecdotal advice. Right. And, and uh, we're more than happy to answer questions like this. Uh, we love getting questions and then we sort of answer them in an appropriate forum. So either we do another show like this or we answer them on the blog hmm. or um, we answer them for individuals. So Yeah. If you have questions, you can email them, learn at thoughtbot.com and we'll add them to the queue mm -hmm. or even just Twitter and whatnot. We're, we're pretty, I think we're both pretty willing to answer random people. I certainly get my fair share of that. Yep. And I'm happy to do it. Uh, all right. So if you'd like to access uh, show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giant robots slash 63. Uh, today's podcast was recorded and edited by Mike Manor and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening.